podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had and what made them. You are listening to the second episode of our second season. It is an episode I was particularly looking forward to since it focuses on so many questions that are central to my personal work in the labor movement. How can we move from digital outreach to offline engagement? How do we get someone from the WhatsApp group into the meeting? These are questions we need to answer if we want to use the full potential of our movements. Over the years, I have seen good campaigns that wasted parts of this potential. There are these campaigns that have very well developed digital outreach strategies with specific target groups and easy-to-access tools for first contact, but then they fail to move people beyond the digital spaces and down the conversion funnel of engagement. At the same time, I've encountered other campaigns that have well-developed connections into their community, well-developed slogans and demands, but lack connection to the digital spaces that their respective bases of concern are actually at. A bummer, I have to say. So, in this episode, we are talking to Bianca Nora. Deputy Director at the Online to Offline Strategy Group, about their work. The organization formed in 2017 as a special project of United for Respect, a retail worker organization in the US particularly known for their Walmart campaign, fighting for better payment and working conditions in one of the biggest retail chains in the US. The Online to Offline Strategy Group, O2O, began as a project to train organizers at United for Respect who were confronted with strong anti-union legislations and a hostile employer. In this context, O2O taught innovative methods and tools to strengthen the important work organizers were doing on the ground and helped them to some remarkable wins. Over the years, O2O has worked with dozens of labor unions, workers' centers and other social justice groups to develop high-impact campaigns to improve working conditions, pass legislations and more. All this by focusing on crafting digital outreach strategies to amplify the engagement strategies of organizers. For us, it's particularly important to look at digital organizing as a tool rather than a model 
that can dramatically expand our collective potentials when used as part of a broader organizing and empowerment strategy. With a long-term experience as an organizer, and particularly as a digital organizer, Bianca has developed a variety of answers to the questions I mentioned above. With this short intro, I only have to say, thank you Bianca for sharing your experience with us and welcome to Spadework. Cool. So, nice to have you on Bianca. Uh, pleasure and a joy for you to be here. Um, I was just wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thank, well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me on. and. Um, yeah, my name is Bianca. I am born and raised from Miami, Florida, and I got into organizing because I did not know that organizing existed in our state. Um, Florida is what is called like a, con uh, it's a purple state, right? So it's a conservative state with pockets of liberal pools of people typically around universities it's kind of the norm here so it wasn't until I got to college that I even knew that people organized I, it literally took me conceptually it took me about two years to even understand what a union was because the the idea did not register to me that I was like oh there are people who help you are they or is it human resources like what is the union right so it took me a very long time to understand what it was. Um, but, you know, ultimately what brought me into organizing was I, you know, I come from, I was raised by a single mom who raised six kids. And um, it wasn't until I became an older adult where I realized that um, a lot of the cycles of poverty that I had experienced as a kid were due to systematic reasons um so that i didn't really connect with that until i got to college and i was uh, kind of radicalized and uh in college by going and i was radicalized by the the immigrant rights movement in college um so i would go to a lot of rallies and to a lot of marches i'm puerto rican um so i have citizenship you know in the united states but my affiliation and my relationship to the immigrant rights movement completely changed after going to a lot of these rallies. And then, you know, I was recruited by a student group, a very nerdy student group who was like, listen, these maintenance workers at our college are organizing. Um, they're, they're about to go into their contract negotiations. Like, do you want to support them? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, right? Because all these maintenance workers reminded me of people from my family and my community. There were a lot of women who were cleaning these huge buildings who were making not a lot of money and having to spend a lot of money just to even park on campus. Um, so really from there, my kind of involvement took off in movement and I never looked back and... Um, that's really how I got into movement, I think, at the time. Um, and then since then, I have always worked and organized within kind of alternative labor movements in the United States. So one of the first campaigns that I was a part of was Fight for 15 um, in Florida and touching ground and organizing fast food workers. And then after that, I worked for 
a farm workers union in North Carolina. Um, and I think that gave me the most grounding as an organizer to really understand how we talk to people and how people feel like they have dignified lives and, you know, are proud of the work that they do. Um, and then after that, for years, I started organizing with Walmart Associates, which kind of um, helped me get into the role and the world that I'm in now. Because you know, back in 2000, 2013, 2014, I was using digital tools to develop committees uh, with Walmart Associates in Florida. And you know, I can explain why in a little bit. But that's essentially how I got into organizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just, just to have a little bit of a historical context, what years were you talking about when you were doing the organizing on campus? Was this in the mid 2000s? And the organizing on campus was um, around 2000, probably somewhere mid uh, later 2010 to like 2013. Cool. And then um, can you give us a little bit of the context then of uh, online to offline uh, organizing strategy? Um, and, you know, how would you also explain the difference between that and what people call digital organizing? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it's a question that I'm happy to answer because I think that people... You know, every time I mention digital organizing, especially in like the labor movement world of, you know, people who are who know exactly what they're doing and are completely seasoned and like know how to build campaigns from start to finish. They're just like, ay, 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 like, what are we doing online right now? Right. Like in my, you know, I'm an older millennial organizer so i feel like i'm on the cusp of like having to knock on doors or getting my car and driving around for hours and you know just working 12 hours a day um to hope to talk to you know maybe 10 people um so you know when i so when i when people usually hear digital organizing they're just like all oh, these armchair activists don't know what they're doing this is just you know like we're online we stay online. So I think for me, I think what distinguishes the O2O model is that we, there's a couple things that distinguish the model. Um, one thing that we think about is that we see digital tools as a tactic to a larger campaign. So the digital tools or the digital, digital organizing isn't all, is not the campaign itself. We see the tools as like, this is the thing that we use to scale up our organizing and we use our wherewithal as organizers, our backgrounds as organizers and campaign builders and strategists to think through an entire plan. So I think the way, like when I, so typically in the US, if you meet someone who is considered a digital organizer, what that essentially means is that like, anything in the digital world they are in charge of doing so it's like they run the social media pages they have to build content they have to think about like the infrastructure of the digital program but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're organizing with people online and i think that's the difference is in our model we think about how how do organizers connect with people online and move people into offline spaces. I think the the other thing the other thing that distinguishes our model is that we focus on metrics that matter to organizers. Um, so 
we really think about like so we talk about this thing called like vanity metrics a lot so when we say vanity metrics like people usually think like virality so it's like wow we got 20,000 impressions we got uh 500 people to like our Facebook group or something um and for us the thing that we're really focusing on is like what does what does engagement actually look like and feel like and how is it supporting organizers in their work so we think about like the times of day that we post or the the days of the week that we post because we know if organizers are going to be off we shouldn't be posting right before a weekend for example because we think about a strategy to help organizers do their work and then I would say, you know, before even getting to the components of the model, one thing that we, I think the thing that we are changing and the thing that we are doing with a lot of the groups that we work with is we're really bringing the digital people, the communicators and the organizers into the room together because they need to, they need to help so organizers need to help inform the communications and the digital strategy because if not digital just becomes like branding for an organization and it doesn't actually help the work that organizers are trying to do like you said you're not just doing social media moderation or content creation right it's about how you bring digital uh, worlds into the broader kind of campaign process and how do you develop relationships out of that, right? Right. Um, one, of the, one of the things that would be good to know is why do you, th- or how did it become visible that you needed to build something like this? When did O2O get created and out of like what impulse, out of what reason, what was the context? Right. Okay. This kind of goes back to our history and, you know, how O2O got created before O2O was even labeled O2O and how some of these tactics were created was probably back in like 2011, 2012. It was actually Walmart associates who were working on uh, for one of the, you know, for the Walmart campaign that I was on. It was Walmart associates who started IDing or becoming members of these like Walmart associate Facebook groups and these were there was a one group in particular that had like thousands of associates within the group and it was the Walmart associates who were connected to the campaign who are like listen this is you know like Walmart is across the country if we are trying to uh, change policy within Walmart we need to be able to connect with people across the country and talk to them about this these issues that they care about so in the earlier stages we would do what we call like Facebook mining so we would so for example you know I lived in Florida and at the time you could literally type in you know people who work at Walmart in Miami right and a list of people would come up and that you know it's like kind of the baby iteration of like you know the you know O2O was essentially like doula out of this kind of like work that associates were doing and that organizers were starting to dip their toes into at the time I think the O2O model now um, looks and feels a little bit different, but there is a lot of essence of like, yeah, we we talk all the time about meeting people where they're at. Guess what? People are online. 
uh, people are online and they're already talking about the issues that we care about, that they care about. Um, there are support systems of workers online and that's how the model began. And then it wasn't until about 2017 where we were like, hey, this model can actually work on different, can work with different campaigns. Like there's actually a way that we can walk through and develop the model with different campaigns and different organizations, labor and community. Obviously at the time we were doing a lot of labor work. Um, so in 2017, uh, you know, a few folks got together to actually begin developing out the model and begin developing out like what's possible. And then in 2000, you know, so just this past year in 2022, the beginning of 2022, um, we've launched into like a fully independent organization and have been working with groups across the country and really around the world to think through their digital strategies. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, this is how we got to know you, right? <laughs> we wanted input over here in Europe. Um, it's like one thing is to meet people where they're at and to adjust that. Just every organizer should rethink that every once in a while, right? You can't go for 50 years into the same cafe. And so you also have to think about um, online spaces as meeting spaces. But the other thing that we were also thinking about is the necessity that work is less uh, focused on on a locality, um, that shift uh, plans get more and more erratic, and people right. also like change their jobs maybe faster. Like they're not that long time employed, but they might switch from one Walmart to another Walmart or things like that. Um, so, did you say feel that you could? replace some of the personal meetings actually through online community building like, can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. about this what did it give you back what we might have lost um, with the change of workplaces labor organizers so there's a couple things in that right so part of it is like Amazon right in the US has a hundred and fifty percent turnover rate and that's actually a part of their um, practice right because it makes it a lot difficult to organize within their facilities so there's part of this is like there's a level of transience that a lot of people feel or have especially after the pandemic where folks are really thinking about and reevaluating like do i want to stay in this workplace forever should i change and then i think the other part of it is like systematically i think it's a it's a lot harder for people to stay in one work site or um the gig economy right is is really enticing to people so I will answer this from a couple different lenses. But, you know, I think in terms of meeting people online um, or, or, you know, like having kind of these replacement meetings online, we've found a couple of things to be true, I think, especially within the, the labor movement. But we've seen it in community as well, where um, especially post pandemic or we're in the pandemic, but especially like in, since the pandemic, a lot of groups are naming that you know attendance rates are higher or there's more accessibility with being able to meet people online or meet with people online and having meetings like actual committee meetings online um so that's like one thing that we see we also know you know with these isolated work sites so um, thinking about people who work in the gig economy so people who work for lyft or people who work for uber or Postmates or any of uh, these gig economy workers, 
you know, they don't have a break room to go to. They don't have coworkers to ask about, you know, like it's actually these practices by Uber and Lyft. Are they, you know, are they just, are they right? Um, so we find that there are a ton of these groups online kind of organically where people are like leaning on each other for support. Um, so in those cases, this online model works really well, right? There's less barriers to access, you know, in Miami, you know, we have to have our meetings at seven or eight o'clock at night because of, you know, people get out at work at five or six, depending on if they're working on a traditional nine to five job. Our traffic is insane. People have kids, people, you know, like people got to make dinner, like all these things exist. But with these online meetings, you know, partition participation rates have gone up. And I think the, the flip side to that is also... I think people, there's still hunger for the human connection. Um, so we talk about this a lot within our model where we we have to be frank with people and name like, you know, the, the online meeting spaces will never replace the face-to-face -face spaces. Um, so whether, you know, I think it's easier to have the face-to-face -face spaces when you're working on a more localized campaign um, but if you're working on a national campaign or a multi-regional campaign or multi-state campaign, you need to think about opportunities or you want to think about opportunities where you can actually bring people from the online world who have already have had some connection to each other into the offline spaces. And I feel like that really kind of solidifies people's connection to the campaign and to each other, right? Like there have been so many experiences that I've had where... I've seen workers or members of the community, but particularly uh, workers who have talked to each other online, have shared their um, trial and tribulation stories with each other. And then the moment that they meet each other in person after so much time being online is like, that's medicine, right? To be able to be like, oh, I'm finally putting a name, like you're my, my soul sister, my soul family, like I'm putting a name to a face finally. Um, so all that to say is like, it's two sides of the same coin, right? It's like, yes, we can develop these authentic communities and relationships online, but we cannot stay there. Like we just can't. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's the doorway, right? Because the breakfast room, if you think about it, or the break room at the traditional workplace as the factory or whatever, um, also isn't necessarily a community space, right? It, it has to become a community space by people putting effort into connecting communities. You might have that one right. that you always have your coffee with or something, but there isn't necessarily... So it's basically... Or the way I see it right now, hearing it from you, it's this like initial organizer that runs in the break room and tries to like get people to be more aware of their collective uh, grievances or their collective identity as like workers of that place um, to like do that online, but you still have to have the next step as well. Can I also add that like in the break room, you actually don't even have the psychological safety to like actually talk about your workplace issues either. Yeah. So the online spaces as well, like I have never had, I have never like so quickly gotten into like spaces of vulnerability with people. And again, I have done in-person organizing for 
probably more than half of my organizing career. So I under, you know, like I know what it is to go to a work site, to talk to people, to be by a bus stop, to be, to meet someone. Right. But like, I like in these online spaces, people are very quick to just be like, yeah, this is my issue. This is like very like, let's just get to the point with it. Um, So just naming that as well, that's like people feel more comfortable talking about what's actually going on at work when they're not at work. That's actually interesting because for me, before the interview, we talked uh, long lengthily about the fact that I'm always interested in the transferability of labor organizing models into community organizing, whatever that community might be. Um, but it might actually be an element there, right? Where you have, you don't have the space as a community necessarily in a neighborhood mm. or as like a specific community within a city. Um, you don't necessarily have spaces where you can talk openly. And so, would you think that that or did you do community organizing with the model too, right? Like, mm-hmm. Is that like the core win, or what would you see there as transferability? Can I can I just name? Can I like step back for a second and just say like, this is so a miss, uh, maybe like a mishap or a myth of the model is or like digital organizing is like it doesn't work because like the digital or online space is difficult. But the thing that I actually see that isn't helpful with implementing the model is like a lack of a campaign (laughs) or a lack of people's understanding of like what an actual campaign is. So one thing that I, I wanna just like name is that like if your campaign isn't clear online or offline, it's not gonna work. And I think the difference for me that I see in like transferability is, you know, in the United States, I think unions um, maybe don't focus too much on ideology and they focus on issue based wins, which in some respects um, is easier to execute because the metrics are clearer. Um, And I, I when I say easier, I don't. Um, that's not to say that the work isn't hard. I just mean like the pathway to win sometimes is clearer. With community organizing, it's a little bit more difficult because you're you are taking on these like ideological issues that exist within the community. You're taking on bigger systems. So I what I find it's like a little bit harder to implement in some of the community spaces because sometimes, uh, those demands or issues aren't really clear or, you know, we're going after, you know, bigger problems versus the smaller tactical kind of issues that we can think about. So that's for me, I'm like, that's number one. And then I think in terms of like transferability, I think there's a lot of things that transfer. Um, I think especially within like, uh, you know, I'm from Florida and, (laughs) every year or every couple years we have elections and people really care about how florida votes and you know we've been able to see right like jesus christ um but we've been able to see um you know like we've been able to do a ton of like volunteer recruitment uh from people or we've been able to like think about how to list build with 
um, with political ads, we've been able, you know, to see like, how can we move leaders down like a leadership pipeline to have conversations about their local candidates or races or um, things that are coming up on the ballot. We see that working out pretty clearly uh, with some of the model. And then I think like, you know, I think the things that community groups do online really well is like community groups understand culture in a different way than maybe uh, I just want to I want to keep reiterating that I come from the labor movement, but like community groups understand culture in uh, a real soul kind of way than maybe like our labor partners might. So I think that the content, like if we're talking about like content for engagement, I think that the lens around that comes from a different place. And I think people are able to connect to it in a more, in a more organic way than, and remember I like content is the thing that helps us to even begin having the one-on-one conversations. Like if we do it correctly, you know, and I think in labor movement, um, you know, people want to like, we get sued all the time, right? So we want to make sure that like our I's and our dotted and our T's are, you know, whatever the phrasing is, like we want to make sure that we're doing these things correctly so that, uh, you know, nobody comes after us. So, but even that's changing, right? Um, I have y'all followed the Starbucks Workers United yeah. work online. Like for me, that is like you know that is like such an incredible example of like they like for me at least when i look at it it's like there's a clear organizing strategy within the workforce but then there's also this huge community component or supporter component where it's like you have this online action of like telling people to go into your local Starbucks, order your Starbucks, tell them your name is Union Yes, and like showing this community support, right? Like I do that at every, you know, at all my start. Well, at the Starbucks is that I know are unionizing near me. I'm like, yeah, Union Strong, Union Yes, all these things, right? Um, that all that action across the country happened because there were directives from the Starbucks workers United Twitter and Instagram pages being like community we need you here are the steps that you need to do to support us yeah <laughs> uh, um, I was just wondering um, we've been beating around the bush of the model a bit talking about little different parts like mm. making good content how to do you know the necessity to meet people where they're at digitally so I was wondering if maybe you could break down the organizational pathway from um, how you outreach to people um, to all the way how do you get them onto the field to actually be doing committee meetings and talking to their co-workers or community members about issues and shit like that yeah um, so the, another great question. So the model has s- six components, maybe five, five and a half components, depending on like, you know, it depends on how I decide I want to talk about it. Um, but like, maybe let's synthesize to five. Um, and we begin, you know, our model has, and I'll just go through them. We, we think about step by step, like list building, outreach, connection, engagement, and then activation and leadership. And, you know, we begin with list building because 
uh, we need lists to do outreach or we need to know who we're going to be talking to, like who is our audience of people that we're going to be talking to. What do you mean by lists? Um, what kind of information do you gather on lists? So lists, when I say lists, I guess it's such a reductive way of saying like we're develop we're collecting the contact information of the people that we want to talk to. Um, so we gather lists in a in a few different ways online. Um, and I and I also have like an asterisk. So this is we would gather lists if you are working within a community or within an organization that does not already have access to a list. So if you are a union who is doing an internal kind of membership drive, you would typically have access to a worksite list. But for a lot of alternative labor movement work or community groups, you have to develop your list. You have to you have to develop your list of contacts that you want to do outreach to or that you want to connect with. And there's a few ways to do that online. Um, typically, there's we think about it in a couple of categories one is organic which just means like unpaid growth or like unpaid list building uh, of contact information collection and then the other one is paid and that typically happens through ads um and when i say ads i i mean like ads on so different social media platforms that we know our audiences will be on and we collect name phone number, email, um, and it's typically connected to like a petition or a survey or um, we use lead generation forms a lot, which is essentially is like an embedded survey on a social media platform. Um, I'm trying not to say meta and Facebook, but you know, <laughs> we can't beat around the the bush we under like we have right like we have such an internal struggle with facebook um but we also just know that like most adults in the u.s and in europe right like use facebook um so it's kind of at this point um you know it's a tool that we have to use but not necessarily one that we want to use um, so we would create these lead generation forms, and these are, again, like the paid kind of uh, ways to, to, to develop contact information. And what's helpful about some of the ads is that you can really target the people that you want to talk to. So, for example, let's say you're organizing with um, childcare providers who work at different daycares. You can target geo target you can do a, ge a geographical target around the radius of a child care center so if someone is working at the child care center your survey or ad will come up that is hopefully going to speak to them enough for them to like click through and share their information mm -hmm. um so that's one of the ways that we do list building and then another way that we do it is organic and i i talked about this earlier the the mining like the facebook mining or instagram mining where you do a little bit of research to see like what groups exist online that you can potentially join or engage people in conversation around so again like there's all these like lift groups there's all these amazon groups there's community groups there there's mutual aid groups right like everyone right now that i know is in some form of a mutual aid group and those are kind of hotbeds as well for for organizing and having real conversations about issues that are coming up in the community housing tenant uh organizing right now right like there's a ton of groups around that because 
you know, like I live in Miami. My, you know, a lot of people that I know, their rent has literally doubled or increased by 50, 60, 70% from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a huge issue for people and people are talking about it online and trying to figure out how to take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have that kind of uh, outreach, and um, then from there, how do you you you, you get them into a Facebook group or? So it depends on a couple things. Let's say you're in the preliminary stages of building a campaign. You might want to like get people into a group or a Facebook group or a WhatsApp group if it's a smaller issue that you're organizing around. Um, you want to get them into a group to be, maybe survey and begin understanding like what some real issues and demands are. Um, so you might not have like a fully thought out like what your next step process is, but typically, if you have a campaign and you have a good understanding of who your base or who are the people that you want to organize um, with in the campaign. Um, you want to move people into you can move people into different locations so sometimes we'll move people into a facebook group but if we're organizing with uh students or we're organizing with teachers or it's or like adjunct professors or folks who are coming from maybe like a, a younger demographic we wouldn't automatically move them into a facebook group because they're probably not on facebook we're going to think about like another area to move them to online but all that to say Um, we do outreach, we have our lists paid or organic. We then do follow up with those people. Follow up needs to happen really quickly because lists get really cold online. And then we immediately kind of go into like literally through DM through direct message. We will have these back and forth conversations about what people's issues are and the hope, right? If you are depending on your organizational capacity, depending on the campaign is to then move people into a phone call. Like we want to be able to talk to people on the phone because we find that if you can have a primer conversation online first, the likelihood of someone can be like connecting with someone on the phone is a lot higher versus cold calling people. People aren't picking up their phones. Just I don't. flat out, right? <laughs> I don't pick up my phone either. I can't tell you the number of missed calls and voicemails I have. But it's like people aren't picking up their phones. So if you're able to then connect with people online um, or have these primer kind of conversations online first, making the ask to a phone call, the likelihood of a phone call happening gets a lot higher and the likelihood of it being a good conversation and people staying on the phone with you is also a lot higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the pathway for like how we move people into the offline space, there's a million directions it can go into. It can be from Instagram to a to moving, it, it could be like we can um, do outreach on Instagram, collect someone's contact information, move them into a peer-to-peer platform, which is a texting platform, um, have conversations back and forth through the peer-to-peer platform, and then move them into a meeting or move them into a phone call and then move them into committee meeting. So there's a bunch of ways that you can move it. And there's also flexibility and and it has to be organic to a certain extent because some people are ready to dive into a meeting. Some people, it's going to take a little bit more time to have a conversation with them. So in this connection piece, um, you know, I think the other part of the connection piece that's I think is really important is like that I'm not naming, but I will now is how are you then connecting 
community members together or members of an, uh, a work site or an industry together. Typically that happens through groups and typically that happens through intentional introductions, right? We have to like make sure that people are talking to each other because if we were in a meeting, we would be talking before the meeting over coffee and showing each other photos of our kids or our cats or our animals or whatever. Like we would have some kind of organic connection before a meeting would happen. So you, we have to create that level of trust and that feeling within our groups and our online spaces first. So that's the other like big connection piece. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after we have had these conversations and have connected people to each other, to the campaign, to organizers, we then do, we then kind of, that becomes the transition, right? If we're thinking about maybe like a bell curve or we're thinking about a roller coaster, right? Like we're going slowly up the roller coaster and it's like the trust roller coaster where we're like building trust and like it's teaming and we're all really excited and we're holding on to our seats and then we get to the edge of the roller coaster and we're looking down and then the downward is into the offline spaces that's the engagement and activation and leadership and like okay this is when the shit gets real where we're like okay we've built our connections and communities like let's actually talk about why we're here and some people fly down the roller coaster with their arms up some people are holding on some people are scared but that is like the ride together so the engagement and activation and leadership that's when we then get into the real campaign building pieces where you know and these aren't the conversations we're having in groups either at this point we're meeting virtually or we're meeting into in-person meetings depending on the industry or how um, spread out uh, the group of people are. Um, but this is when we have the nuts and bolts organizing conversations about like what are our issues and how do we get what we want and the power building and power mapping. So all of that still happens. Um, but those pieces won't happen for us. It won't happen on as public of a platform as Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that also basically means when I decide to campaign, let's say in Germany on a federal level, I will not mm -hmm. be able to like go to 20 different cities realistically. Right. So you really have to adapt your online model to what is your offline capacity, right? It's just a possibility right. to, not just, but it's like, It's a very powerful tool to increase your like network, but you still need to really be aware because it sounds like if it I think if you find like two people in Michigan and ten in Florida and fifteen in California, you can't connect them, right? I mean you can have a Zoom call, but you have a very hard time for them going offline or going into the non digital world. Yeah, it's Right. So I think that that's totally right. And I think it's like a real, it can be like a real flag or um, something to consider. The other, the other piece of it is, is like the capacity question is interesting because people on the front end are like, wow, this requires so much capacity to set up. This requires a lot of capacity to keep track of. And it does. I think I want to just name for people that a real consideration and a real challenge is that it takes like three to six months to onboard a digital program to the point that it feels organic and kind of self-sustaining 
or and the point that you've already like trained leaders and members to help run your digital spaces as well it's not your digital spaces it's like their spaces right like it's it's like the committee meeting like we're you know it's like they're building it so part of it is it's like yes you're gonna have 10 people in florida two people in michigan 15 people in california you're gonna be dealing with different time zones you're gonna be dealing with different needs but in within the that kind of model like the connection can also look like oh because we're so spread out how are we then being intentional about like actually having an in-person or meeting space how are we being intentional about expanding capacity by actually developing our leadership to like do some of this work and understand how we're shift like organizing is shifting um how are you know like members of our community holding their own organizing conversations are we training people to hold organizing conversations online like there's a lot of these different elements that we need to invest in and i think people just like see the online as like well it's still hard like they're and i'm just like yeah organizing is hard <laughs> i think that's that's what i also wanted to get to a little bit that um i feel quite often you mentioned that a little bit in the beginning that this digital organizing reaches kind of this Obama idea of like, oh my God, I sent out 5 million emails and a lot of people actually opened that. And that's great. But like, yeah. that's not organizing people into a sustainable labor or community struggle, right? It's like a one day, one activity, vote for some person kind of thing. It's a different kind of request. But then right. the, the work really still, if you do online, to offline or online organizing how I would like to see it. It is supposed to, to build a more lasting structure, I would think. And I think this like thinking about leadership, thinking about what does it actually take to to decentralize it, right? To not be the one person who sends out the weekly email, but to like have mm -hmm. email senders and like communicators and, and doers in the different spots that you that you reach. Okay, here's another challenge that I think is like important to name and maybe it's important for others who are listening to this to reflect on. Like we want to gatekeep our online spaces so much. Like we want to just retain like and for a lot of really valid reasons because once it's on the internet, right? It's on the internet forever and we need to be careful. But I find that a lot of organizations like it's really hard to like give control to their membership to to run some of their online spaces out of really valid legal reasons uh or technical reasons and also fear right like there's just like well like maybe our membership isn't as professional as we'd like or want them to be or they might say the wrong things and it's kind of like let them say the wrong things it's fine like let them make mistakes and like let's actually develop people um and then you said something before that just also you know it made me think about this for a second and i want to say too like what i find is actually easier to do is when people are beginning their digital organizing journey i can i it, it's a lot easier to work with someone who has traditional organizing knowledge and experience but has no technical skill or ability versus the other way around like it's easier for me to teach people how to use digital tools than 
not that it's not easy for me to teach people how to organize. That's what I do for a living. But it's it, like the transfer of skills is different. So I say this, you know, especially when there are older or people who have been organizing for two, three, four decades who are like, I can organize my community or I can organize a shop with my eyes closed. I'm like, great. Like you are the person that I need online. You are the person that I need to actually help teach other organizers how to have these really important organizing questions or organizing conversations where we're asking curious and difficult questions to people like you're the person that I actually need in the room. Um, and I, I think it's so interesting. One of our, you know, our um, senior advisor is in his 50s and he is like thinking about how do we develop our own our own social media platforms, our own databases, like how, you know, and this is not a super technical savvy person, but this is someone who understands the world as it is. And they're like, yeah, like we actually need to shift our labor movement into thinking about this a little bit more, because if not, we're going to fall kind of even more behind. One, uh, one, one of those, uh, part of this also really depends on coming up with good content. Right, like especially once you funnel people into a group, uh, you don't want to turn that group into a dead group um, that people just you know start ignoring because either there isn't anything happening there or what's happening there just isn't engaging. Mm. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some mm -hmm. of the uh, some of the different kind of tools that you guys use in order to keep that uh, that chat group or that Facebook page fresh right. and actually engaging. Yeah, I think that this is, it's another great question. Um, and it's also really important because this is how we begin our organizing conversations. Like I will say this forever, that your content is your vehicle f towards engagement, which is like the next kind of step of the process. So there's a couple of things that we do and it depends on the platform. So for me, when I think about content on Facebook or I think about, how we use content to engage on Facebook. I think about the groups, like Facebook groups primarily, because pages are really, um, they're like a megaphone. You're just talking to people instead of like having, you know, kind of real conversations back and forth. <laughs> Where groups are, groups are first of all prioritized by the, by the algorithm. So Facebook is trying to be like, we're community centered and oriented. So groups are like the way, that we can actually have these conversations. So things that we know don't work well in groups, articles with no context, or kind of articles in general, but especially if you just throw an article in a group, like people aren't gonna really engage with that. People aren't gonna read it. They're gonna read the headline and keep it moving. Mm -hmm. um, but we find that in groups, like what works really well are like questions, asking questions, polls, um, just, getting people to have the conversation back and forth in the comments like that is what works really well in groups um and then i think the other thing that works well on most platforms right now is any kind of video any kind of video any kind of video especially if it has captioning we find works really well in groups um to elicit conversation and then on facebook in particular the um the Facebook lives are really helpful for engagement. So it's like we find that they're really helpful for 
letting people see what you're doing on the ground. So what you're doing in person, especially like for events or meetings are really helpful too, especially if people can't actually like physically uh, be in a meeting to like live stream it within a group is helpful. And then when I think about Instagram there, for me, there are, there's like two strategies for Instagram content, your grid, your grid on Instagram is like the first thing that people see when they go to your Instagram page. Uh, that is for like connecting with new followers or new people that you want to connect with or, or talk to. So I, I can give you an example. Um, so we created an Amazon, we created with another group, we created an Amazon Instagram page because we wanted to organize with Amazon associates. So the front facing page is kind of like a meme page where, you know, and, you know, we're thankfully like Amazon is an industry where like, there's just so much content out there from Amazon. There are so many warehouse workers and drivers who are creating content about like what it's like, hilarious, hilarious content about like what it's like to work at Amazon. So we developed a strategy where we were like, okay, we know Amazon associates love memes talking about what it's like to work at Amazon. So why don't we create a page to talk about what it's like to work at Amazon through memes and we will simultaneously like actually share worker stories. Um, we obviously like credit uh, content creators as much as possible. So front facing funny meme page talking about very specific Amazon language. Like if you're not an Amazon associate, you're not gonna get it, you're not a part of the club. But then our stories, that is like where we engage with our current followers. So our stories get a little bit more serious where we then actually talk about like, hey, you know, uh, we, had, we had someone share with us on the page, um, an associate. One associate took a photo of another associate who had passed out in the warehouse, like passed out on the floor. And instead of managers calling an ambulance, this is the story that they told us. So it's like, I'll, I'll throw in allegedly out there just for legal reasons. Um, so <laughs> what we, <laughs> I'm from the US y'all. So, <laughs> like, so allegedly uh, managers did not call an ambulance. They offered this associate a popsicle. Nice. <laughs> So it was the associate who took the photo of this person on the ground who actually called an ambulance because they are a human being, human right? Being. <laughs> so medical attention. Jesus. So we then got permission to share the story and to share the photo, right? Um, and it's it's interesting because we can keep people anonymous on Instagram because we know who they are because they send us direct messages. We have access to their profiles. So it's a lot easier for us to share these stories in an anonymous way so, to protect them um, uh, for, you know, for all these safety reasons. So uh, we shared the story and then we would throw up um, like a questions box or a poll asking like, has anything like this ever happened at your warehouses? Um, have you been injured at the job? Has has Amazon ever denied any requests for uh, for workers comp? And we we then get a flood of messages coming in. So then our back end of Instagram is really like 
that's the organizing pieces. But the front facing is like, we're going to bring you in with the funny memes. Um, but we have an integrated plan. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Um, yeah, I was wondering if we could perhaps get into um, some other concerns. And um, one of the classic things that uh, I've come across, like when I tell people that perhaps we should do some kind of digital organizing approach, mm. immediately the, the fear of union busting. Like, oh, if we do something online, then they're going to uh, close Find shop. Out that we do yeah, yeah. And I mean, companies do that. Like there have been cases over here, um, we are not going to name any companies, <laughs> but where they clearly like move their, their centers around in order just to make clear you will be no union. Yeah, like the second that there's any kind of union activity, they just close shop and then move somewhere else, right? So I was just wondering how you handle, um, like you talked a little bit about that right now with the Instagram because the front end is pretty anonymous. No one has any idea who's engaging with it. And on the back end, you have like very clear uh, uh, engagement with workers. But I was wondering what other ways um, we could deal with that kind of concern with union busting. Yeah, that is a question that we get a lot. Like, I think uh, there's a lot of elements to that question. So it's like the union busting piece. It's organizers who also don't want to share their personal lives, right? Like we share a lot of personal information on our Instagrams, on our Facebooks, who don't want to share that necessarily. Like that is a different element where it's like, as a traditional organizing, you could kind of keep more of a boundary, but then with the digital stuff, there's not as much of a boundary. And then there's obviously the SIFT issues that you're talking about. So I will say, and I'm sorry, but there is no like silver bullet for, I mean, you can, you can really think about community guidelines and you can think about community guidelines a lot and you can think about like how to protect your online spaces as much as possible. Um, but the thing that we, you know, the thing that I, I say all the time is that like, I cannot guarantee a safe space online because it's it can be accessible to anybody or there can be infiltrators or agitators who get into our groups. Um, sometimes it's easier to have more lax privacy settings so that you can guarantee that like more people so that the groups are actually accessible. But then the flip side of that is that like, again, like information can come out. So one of the, so there's a couple of like safety things that we can think about. We can think about what tools we want to use for communication. We can think about encrypted platforms. We can think about, or, or apps or software that we can use so that it's a little bit harder to share our information. However, a lot of people are using Facebook a lot of people are using a lot of people are using products by Meta, right? Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. So what I tell people a lot is that like we cannot do the nuts and bolts organizing on the platforms. We have to we have to use a separate platform to actually think through and talk through strategy. So I think in the cases that people are concerned about being union busted or losing their jobs. Part of it is like we have to be really thoughtful with like what we're actually sharing and what we're actually talking about online. And I will say that like when I think online, I think public. So I always uh, keep that in mind and we always inoculate people with that information around like, yeah, you do have to be careful with what you share because 
you know, we know, you know, in the U.S., like we know it's illegal to fire people based, you know, for organizing online or in or in any capacity. But people don't care. Like people are going to get fired. You know, people are still going to get fired. So the pivot to that is like, OK, then what do we actually have to do? You know, like what actually needs to happen so that like we um like, why is this unfair? Like, why, like, why are we so much of a threat right now organizing online? Like, what should we be doing? Because we know this isn't right. So for me, I always pivot into like, what is a, like a good organizing conversation? And then a clear communication around like, this is, this is what's going to happen in these public platforms. And then these are the conversations that are not going to happen within the public platforms. Do you like approach people let's say they connect with your group and you send them immediately a private message to say like these are our community roles or something like that because sometimes there are people that say like in the same with the same group of workers and then you have typically younger people who kind of have this like if i get fired i go to i don't know starbucks or amazon right. um, and so i don't really care and then you have these other people people that say i i, I want it better here but I really can't afford losing the job and so mm. there might be different interests and and to like you want to preferably create a space where all of them can be <laughs> right it's basically like if I shorten the question it's like the pros and cons of safety warnings if you approach people online safety warnings you might scare them away I would think mm. particularly if they're already on the fence like those people that you want to get in uh, but when you don't give safety warnings I as Like Germans are are ridiculed a little bit, I feel, for their weird data privacy concerns all day. But I was shocked how naive politically active people used their online presence in the U.S. Like I was, I remember when I started becoming politically active, it gave me anxiety how much people would just put names, photos, home addresses in like in struggle against police violence and where you had like it was like oh my god, this is why are you doing this? So. There's a, a, a line you have to walk, right? Right. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I was, I was just going to say that I think that, like, one thing is that you don't have to directly, like, message someone that comes in and be like, here's the rules, otherwise, like, you're out. Like, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> and the second rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. Like, you could just have that, like, I don't know, I was thinking that you could have that kind of in the, the board. Like rules like kind of in a facebook group and then you could periodically like update that but i mean i was gonna add, i was gonna like respond with a question right like if i'm organizing offline only my first conversation with a member of the community or with a member you know a worker from an industry i'm not going to be like by the way if you join our union you might get fired <laughs> like that's not the right like i wouldn't have that conversation in person either Like, I, I mean, I think you need, I mean, sorry, I, I would inoculate. I would talk about the risks of organizing because it's always a risk and depending, you're right, like depending, and in the US, right, the consequences for organizing look a lot different than the consequences for organizing in Central and South America than the consequences in organizing in India or other countries. So really it's like, yes, you need to be having inoculation conversations in general, but in my organizer approach, I'm not gonna, that's not the first thing. Like I wouldn't like the equivalent of like sending someone a direct message with like, here's the rules, 
people might find your information. Like, that's not the first thing that I would say because, yeah, nobody's going to come to the yard, I think, at that point. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, to, to Dan's point, um, you know, we do have like our – so we do primer conversations before we move people into our groups. So we talk about the community guidelines. It's not just written, but like before we actually move someone into the group, we, we talk about like what the group is about, who's a part of the group, what we say or what we don't say in the group. And that changes depending on how large the industry is. Sometimes you don't have the ability to have a one-on-one -on -one with every single person that you move into a group or people find the group kind of organically and decide to join. Um, but I think it's like, more of um dance style around like if people join the group kind of organically or they find it we want to begin having like a direct conversation immediately um and the direct conversation isn't going to talk about the group guidelines or safety but the direct conversation is like we want to get to know you we want to develop a little bit of trust and then you know talk about what we name or say in the group but you're right we do i think in the u.s we share a lot of information we share strategy publicly all the time and it doesn't make sense <laughs> you know so it's just i think for us it's just like yeah it's something that we got to consider a little bit more yeah. um i always ask that question i think at least i want to always ask it are there like one or two things that you have seen or done or, or whatever witnessed uh, where you say that's really a killer for online to offline organizing like the big mistake that you did that no one else needs to repeat <laughs> yeah Ooh. Um, <laughs> you know in my philosophy in life we don't take l's or losses we just learn lessons so i'm grounded by all of my mistakes and i you know sometimes i cringe but i try not to <laughs> um i <laughs> i think the thing that will kind of crush an online to offline campaign is keeping the campaign or keeping the organizing online only i think that you lose a lot of the the kind of soul of the campaign or it just kind of like dissolves it doesn't you know it's like people are just like what are we actually doing here not that it's and and even when i say that too it's like you can have global movement work right distributive organizing where people are taking their directives online only but there is always some form of offline action right so i think like that is really important and where i see a lot of organizations go wrong is just like the reliance on the digital only tools even though we love them obviously right we spent this whole conversation talking about them um but not having the offline action is in is extremely important for me i feel like the major mistakes come from the lack of like a theory of change and the campaign planning um, I also think that people underestimate the amount of capacity that's required on the front end or like not building out your workflows or having clear metrics, I think are really hard because you're just like, I'm creating the group and I want to grow the group. That's my goal is like to grow the group. Mm -hmm. But then if there's no backwards plan around like, okay, well, if we want to connect with a thousand people, you need steps to get there. So if you want to connect with thousands of people in six months, what are you doing within those six months to connect with them? So 
are we having debrief conversations to figure out what type of online communication is working or not working or what how well our content is doing or not doing? Um, typically, that's not happening with some uh, like the digital debriefs don't happen as often as like the team debriefs to talk about what happened in the field. That I think is a huge missed opportunity. The lack of metrics, you know, so it's like if we are we want to grow our group or if we want to identify this many leaders, how many conversations a day do we need to be having? Like people don't put those metrics within their planning and then people get kind of lost in the sauce. And then the other the other issue is that like people are then like, okay, digital organizing is really important. The pandemic happened. We lost access to all of our members of the community. People are, are afraid to meet in person, like all of these things. People want to create, like they want to, automatically shift every single program into a digital program or they want to create a social media presence on every social media platform and it's kind of like one that's exhausting and two that's a lot to learn right like I think we have to like get people to remember that and this is like people get so frustrated with the online stuff and they're like you see it doesn't work when in reality it takes months to develop a really accurate uh, lookalike list, for example, like a targeting list so that you can build your your contact information or the people that you want to reach out to. It takes a long time to develop something that's actually like functional. It takes months for a page to grow organically so that you're not having to actively Facebook mine every day or every week or, 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 or mine or find people online or whatever. So for people who are thinking about developing digital tools or developing an integrated digital program, think about a campaign to pilot. So think about like of the work or projects that you're doing, which campaign do you think could actually benefit from developing a digital program around? So for example, if I'm organizing retirees, I don't think that like that would necessarily be the best like retirees who still get newsletters in the mail and who still like are paying bills via checks like my grandmother does so I'm like that is not might not be the best program to develop you know a digital a digital campaign around um so I think it's like, what is the program that we think has uh, like where the industry or the base of people we're trying to organize has some form of presence or a connection or whatever online? And then what are the specific tools that we think mm -hmm. those people are on or will connect with? And those are the tools that we should really develop out. And then my last kind of like, you know, in terms of like, if we really want to talk about mistakes, Oh my God, please have a database um, to track your people. So a lot of people don't uh, use their database uh, in a way that is actually like helpful to them. But you have to remember that Facebook, Meta, Instagram, whatever, they don't give you data unless you pay for it. Really, they give you basic insights. But when it comes to like people's information, they're not going to give it to you. So you need ways to track who you're doing outreach to and it can get you can get lost really quickly um, with all that mm -hmm. as well. Which is kind of an offline organizing advice too, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Same thing with strategy. It's just like you need to know where you want to go a little. That's yeah. I have one more thing. The other thing is, 
um, people do not use their data effectively. Like people do not even review their insights. So the other issue that I see, and I think the other, um, you know, the lesson that I've learned is like, you really need to I think that there's um, a quote, there's a percentage, like a re- research piece came out recently that said that about 60% of nonprofits don't look at their data. So they're not reviewing their data. They're not reviewing your insights. That is really important information in this digital world of like algorithms and like really thinking about times of the day or what's the type of content, right? Like these algorithms online, like there, you know, there's an element of that we have to pay attention to, right? So if we're posting images of like huge group shots, where we can't really decipher people's faces, people online aren't going to connect with that because the algorithm, you know, like periodically on Instagram, you got to post a selfie because the algorithm can recognize faces and like that's going to show up on people's feeds. So really reviewing your data and insights, there's free tools you can use, there's paid tools that you can use. Um, to help inform your content strategy and to help inform your organizing strategy are going to really get you far. Awesome. Thank Thank you you very much. much. Well, I think that's all we have for now. Thank you, Bianca, um, uh, for coming out on Spadework Podcast. We and our listeners very much appreciate the insights you've taken the time to share with us today. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that this was helpful, informative, and silly. Um, (laughs) And I I appreciate y'all's time, too. Awesome. Uh,